Friends, as we continue to worship our God and King who has received us into His kingdom through His Son, it's good to be reminded how we must approach Him in our worship. So listen to Hebrews 12, 28 to 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, in this way, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Friends, this is the God who, by His grace, reveals the mysteries of His kingdom to His people in His all-sufficient Word. So let me now invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 to 49. Daniel chapter 2, look at the entire chapter. Now let's ask the Lord for His help as we approach His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that no one can come to You or know You except through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, these things you have prepared for those who love you. And these things you have revealed to us through the Spirit. Lord, you have imparted the truths of your kingdom to us in words. So help us now, Father, to understand these royal words, these words of eternal life. Show us the glory of our Savior King, that we might serve you and proclaim the good news of your kingdom. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light do we see light. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 204 years ago, on January 11th, 1818, an English newspaper called The Examiner published a sonnet by a young poet named Percy Bysshe Shelley. It was called Ozymandias. Historically, Ozymandias was the Greek name of the Egyptian pharaoh Ramesses II. And Shelley's poem tells the story of a traveler who ends up in a vast desert wasteland with, with nothing but sand stretching for miles without end. And in that wasteland, he discovers the pitiful remains of a broken statue, just the legs, part of the visage or face, and a platform on which it used to stand. Shelley writes, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, Half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. You see, Shelley's poem is a haunting meditation on the fall of human kingdoms and the futility of human pride. But long before Shelley, the sons of Korah, wrote this in Psalm 49, 12 to 13. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was a man full of pomp. After all, he had just defeated the king of Egypt at Carchemish, uh, this was no small feat. Egypt was the superpower of the ancient Near East. This happened around 605 BC, 
That's when Nebuchadnezzar began to establish his dominion by subjugating the areas of Syria and Palestine. And the kings of Judah, weakened by their own corruption, were no match for the Babylonian emperor. Eventually they were overthrown and some of them taken into exile and eventually Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city of Jerusalem and its temple. And as trophies of his victory, he carried away some of the young men of the royal family, among whom were Daniel and his friends from the tribe of Judah. Now in chapter 1, last week, we saw how the writer repeatedly helps us see all these events from God's perspective. He wants us to have a God-centered view of human history. And he tells us that it was the Lord who gave the people of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. This was the Lord's judgment upon Israel for their idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness. You see, the book of Daniel teaches us that human history is not subject to chance or fate. It's not even subject to mighty kings or tyrannical governments. No, this world and all that happens in it is subject to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Daniel that spans Israel's exile in Babylon over a period of 70 years was written for this reason, to teach the people of Israel to trust in a sovereign God whose word both orders and governs redemptive history. He is a God who not only knows the future, but he also controls the future. Therefore, he is the God who makes good on his promises. The God of Daniel calls his people to trust in his promises that not only ensure that he will deliver his people from physical exile, but that he will also deliver them one day from spiritual exile through his coming Messiah. To those who trust in him, he gives sustaining grace in the face of the pressures of idolatry. And to those who trust in him, he gives wisdom and understanding to navigate the temptations of this world and to remain undefiled from it. In light of this kingship, his kingship, God calls his people to respond to his covenant love with bold and courageous obedience. He calls us to make our allegiance to him known to all and to be defiant in our faith when the values of the kingdoms of this world collide with the kingdom of God. Now in chapter 1 verse 17, the writer tells us that God gave Daniel understanding in all dreams and visions. This is the author's way of preparing us for what will unfold in chapter 2. So in chapter 1, we get a little taste of what life was like for Daniel and his friends in exile in Babylon. You get to see how much control mighty Babylon had over their lives. But in chapter 2, we get to see that despite all his earthly power, King Nebuchadnezzar is shown to be helpless and dependent on God's servant who reveals to him where true power and true kingship lies. And so in this chapter, we'll get to see three things. We'll get to see a helpless king, a humble servant, and a heavenly kingdom. A helpless king, a humble servant, and a heavenly kingdom. But first, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but let's take a peek into what's going on in the royal bedroom in the Babylonian palace. Look at verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. We're told that this happened in the second year of his reign. Now, in Babylon, they calculated things a little differently. You would think they would calculate year one from the moment a king ascended the throne, but that year or part of that year would have been called the ascension year. And then the subsequent year would, would have been counted as year one of his reign, and then the third year as the second year of his reign. So this event actually happens after Daniel and his friends have completed three years of training. Now we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar. And he seems anxious and agitated. This man who was conquering kingdoms, raiding temples, educating the exiles about the glories of Babylon changing people's identities, exercising authority over them, demanding allegiance. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was all about power and control. And now all of a sudden, he realizes 
that there is an invisible power that he cannot control. You know, God in his providence gives him dreams, and the text says dreams in plural, presumably because he was having the same dream again and again, and he couldn't sleep. It's not another earthly kingdom that takes away Nebuchadnezzar's peace, but a dream, more like a nightmare that keeps him awake. And while he doesn't understand it, he knows that it threatens him personally. You know, all that fame and power and influence and military might, and all it takes is a mere dream in the night. And the great king is like a blind man groping in the dark for answers. He's troubled and afraid. So what does he do? Well, he looks for answers. But he looks for them in all the wrong places. And it doesn't go so well. Look at verses 2 to 13. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. The fact that the Chaldeans, one of the people groups, the main people group in the kingdom, the reason they're mentioned separately tells you that the first three professionals were probably from other places, perhaps from Egypt and other eastern nations. Now, why keep these people around, this multicultural assortment of minions? Well, you keep them around for moments like these. The reason why Near Eastern kings had these kinds of professionals around them was to ensure their success in all their military campaigns. So dreams were considered to be messages from the gods. And so kings would ask their counselors, what does the dream mean? What am I supposed to do? And they would ask the sorcerers, why am I not able to defeat this king or that king? Has he put a spell on me? Well, how do we put a spell on him? And how do we weaken his power? Or the magicians, if they got sick, why am I sick? Give me a magic potion and cure me of my illness. And then they would ask the enchanters, the ashaf, sometimes translated as magi, when is the best time to attack? Are the stars aligned in place? You know, there was a market, a demand for these professions, as long as there were power-hungry megalomaniacs like Nebuchadnezzar. And so they came in, the text tells us, and they stood before the king. Verse 3, And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, so this is where the Aramaic portion begins, and it continues till the end of chapter 7. O king, live forever. You know, this is kind of funny and ironic, given that Daniel is going to tell him that his kingdom will soon be overthrown by another. It's clear that these guys don't know what they're doing. Long live the king, they say. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. So much confidence. You know, they thought that this was just another day, but they were wrong. Verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. Meaning, here's what I've decided and it's irrevocable. I've made up my mind. This is it. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Boy, this guy got up on the wrong side of the bed, didn't he? You know, th that dream not only troubled him, it made him angry. There was something about that dream that shook his security. Not only does he want them to interpret the dream, he wants them to tell him his dream. It's clear that he doesn't trust these men. If they're really worth what he was paying them, and they, if, if they were really consulting the gods, they should tell him his dream. If not, he says he's going to cut them up into pieces, destroy their families, and convert their homes into a garbage dump. Notice the over-the-top violence and excessive cruelty in that response. And friends, that tells you where his heart is. When you love and when you worship power and control, when you put your security, when you take refuge in worldly success, it will drive you insane when your idol is threatened. If your idol is money, when you lose it or have it taken away from you, your heart will respond like this, sinfully. If your idol is your culture, 
And you will respond with anger and bitterness when you have to set aside some of your cultural preferences in order to love others. See, this is a man who is not only insecure, he's out of control. This is a helpless king who's put his trust in all the wrong places. And in a very real sense, Nebuchadnezzar represents the state of all mankind, doesn't he? He has exchanged the worship of the one true God for the worship of self. And he is willing to punish and destroy anyone that prevents him from serving himself and his ambitions. As Paul says in Romans 1.25, he has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. Friends, this self-worship is what the Bible calls sin. And what Nebuchadnezzar fails to see is that the very thing he's threatening his advisors with, death, hangs over his own head, held by God's holy hand. Beloved, God has prepared a grave for every sheikh. He has prepared a grave for every president and every emperor. Because of our rebellion, our sin against God, he stands over sinful humanity in judgment. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be reminded soon that he's not going to last forever. But right now, he threatens and he bribes. He threatens death, but he also promises rewards. He's desperate for answers. Look at verse 6. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. See, Nebuchadnezzar has caught on to their ploy. I know what you're doing. You're trying to buy time, aren't you? If I tell you the dream, then who's to say whether your interpretation will be right or not? You can lie to my face and keep doing it until the situation changes. Therefore, tell me the dream, he says, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Now, once they hear this, they know that there's no way to wiggle out of this one. Verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. This can only be answered by gods who do not dwell with humanity, they say. You know, this gives you some insight into their paganism and idolatry. But friends, in that confession, I hope you can hear the futility of idolatry. You know, their so-called special abilities have failed them. Paganism is ultimately a sham. There is no hope, no security, and ultimately no help in paganism or other religions. Those gods are no gods at all. There is only one God who reveals the future because there is only one God who controls the future. The psalmist says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. The idols, the idols of the nations, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. That's Psalm 115, 3-8. And so the helpless king realizes that when it comes to dealing with a sovereign God who gives dreams, even his minions are helpless. Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. Now, this is a big problem 
because the Council of Wise Men recently added four new graduates. And now they're in trouble as well. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. It's also interesting to note that even though chapter 1 ends with Nebuchadnezzar clapping his hands for Daniel and his friends saying, Oh, ten times better, ten times better than everyone. You remember that? He hasn't even consulted them. After all, they were fresh graduates. What do they know? Whatever happened to that lofty assessment? All those praises. Beloved, beware of the praises of men. Even important men. Don't put your trust in them. Don't put your hopes in them. Don't live for earthly glory. The unbelieving world is fickle. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now Nebuchadnezzar might have put his trust in all the wrong places, but Daniel and his friends, though weak and insignificant and helpless in Babylon, they had put their trust in the right place. Or should I say, the right person. And that brings us to our second point. In this story, we also see a humble servant. Look at verses 14 to 19. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? See, what Daniel displays here is precisely what God had blessed him with in chapter 1. He doesn't have a panic attack, which I suppose most of us might, if the police showed up on our doorstep with a government-sanctioned execution order. Daniel asks, why the urgency? What's behind the rush? Everything was fine yesterday. What happened? You know, Daniel's chief concern was not his safety. No, he wanted to know what was going on so that he could understand it theologically. Beloved, when trials come our way, or when we are sinned against, before we react to or do anything, I think it would serve us well for a brief moment if we stopped and considered, I wonder what the Lord in His sovereign wisdom is doing here now. And how can I be faithful to Him in this situation? Think about doing that before you react to a fussy child or an angry boss. Stop and think. See things from God's perspective. You know, Daniel applies his God-given wisdom and amazingly God gives him favor in the eyes of Arioch. Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. When Daniel realizes what was happening, he seeks an audience to bear witness to God, knowing that the Lord was with him and that he had given understanding in all dreams and visions. So he does this, verse 16. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time. You know, he would have made a request to the king indirectly through a, a palace official. Remember, you couldn't just walk into the king's presence. Now, what was the request? Look at the text, that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. So, Arioch makes the matter known to Daniel. Now, Daniel makes the matter known to his friends. And in humility, look at what they do. They turn to the Lord in prayer. He told them what had happened, verse 18, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Even though the Lord had blessed Daniel with these gifts, he doesn't presume on God, but seeks his face. You know, the prophet Jeremiah had said earlier that if the exiles would pray to him and seek him with all their hearts, he would hear them. Jeremiah 29 verse 12. And so that's what they do. Daniel and his friends ask the Lord for mercy to reveal to them the dream and its interpretation so that they would not be destroyed with the rest. And the text tells us that the Lord answered their prayer. Notice what He is called. He is called the God of heaven. He is transcendent. He is above and beyond this world, beyond human reach and comprehension, beyond the reach of Nebuchadnezzar's cronies, but not beyond the reach of those He loves. Beloved, do you believe that? 
Do you believe that the God who is high and lifted up, who is sovereign over the universe, He hears our prayers? Because Jesus Christ has forgiven us of our sins and reconciled us to God, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy, that we might find grace to help in time of need. Our Heavenly Father delights to hear the prayers of His children. So we can cry out to Him through the Spirit, calling Him our Father with the confidence that we will be heard through Jesus Christ, our High Priest. Our High Priest who forever lives to make intercession for us. You see, the sovereignty of God ought to drive us to our knees in prayer more often. Who else can help? Who else is sufficient to help? You know, this might have been difficult for the Chaldeans, but as the Lord said to Jeremiah, is anything too hard for me? Brothers, prayer is the remedy for all human self-sufficiency. As the hymn writer says, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He gave God praise. Think about that. With a death threat hanging over their heads, these young men praise God. You know, maybe that sounds odd to you. Or perhaps you're thinking, this is just a way of acknowledging God's sovereignty over their affairs. So I'm not praising God for this wicked thing that has come my way, but I'm praising Him in it. Sort of on the lines of 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. But there's more to this praise. Remember that God has just revealed the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. Daniel's praise is in response to God's divine word. And that is Daniel's God-centered solution to his earthly problem. Brothers and sisters, our anxieties, our work pressures, our worries about our children and finances, they all weigh heavily on us when people are big and God is small. But when we praise God, when we make much of Him, we learn to see God as He truly is, according to His Word. So Albert, brother, thank you for leading us in that prayer of praise. It was so helpful uh, for my heart in being reminded of God's greatness. You served us well this morning. Thank you. You know, that was worth, his prayer was worth 10 counseling sessions. Just hearing about the greatness of God. And my problem seems so small. And this is what Daniel proclaims. Look at verses 20 to 23. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. You know, the name of God is His character. It's who He is and who He reveals Himself to be. He is the one to whom belongs wisdom and might, He says. He is the only fount of all wisdom and He is the one who is almighty. Verse 21, He changes times and seasons. You know, they needed to confess that, didn't they? By acknowledging this about God, they were being reminded that after sustaining them through three years of training in exile, this did not catch God off guard. This trial was not meaningless. God is the one who changes situations. He is the one who ordains that our car breaks down in the middle of the road. He is the one who orders hurricanes. He is the one who controls the outcome of an election. He removes kings. And he sets up kings. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Every authority that is instituted over men is from God. Isn't this what Paul says in Romans 13 verse 1? You know, there is no authority except from God. That's what Jesus said to Pilate, didn't he? He said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And if every human authority, every government, every institution is set up by God to punish evil and reward good, 
evil as defined by God's word and good as defined by God's word, then it explains why God's word and God himself holds ultimate sway over them all. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Daniel says he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. In other words, nothing is hidden from God. His understanding and his knowledge is unsearchable and yet he reveals his word to his children, doesn't he? You know, that just make, wants, that makes me want to read my Bible more when I hear that. To Daniel, he gave the interpretation of this dream. And it's written down for us. You know, in former times, this is how God spoke. But now he has spoken to us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The fullness of his revelation has been given to us. And we have the all-sufficient scriptures given to us to equip us for every good work. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Beloved, when we praise God, not only do we get a big view of God, but we also get to see our problems in proper perspective. And when we do that, we ought to give Him thanks. And our resolve to be faithful ought to be strengthened. That's what happened to Daniel. Look at verse 23. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. God is not only the God of heaven, high and lifted up, but he is also the God who draws near to us by his grace. He is the one who enters into a gracious covenant with unworthy sinners. Daniel remembers that by calling him what? The God of my fathers. The God who reveals the truths of his kingdom. The God who reveals the future. The God whose word promised a coming Messiah. This God is not Marduk. He is not Baal. He is not Allah or Krishna. He is the God of Daniel's father. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and of David. The one who promised an eternal kingdom with the son of David ruling on the throne forever. And so having prepared his heart to speak, Daniel is now ready to speak to the frustrated king. Look at verses 24 to 30, to 30. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. You know, I find it funny in this account that Daniel keeps chatting with the very guy who's assigned to kill him. It's like so chatty. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Friends, I hope you can see what's being described to us. Not only, that, not only does Daniel remind us of Joseph, who revealed to a troubled Pharaoh his dreams, but here in Daniel we see God's humble servant. God's humble servant who stands under a sentence of death for no fault of his, and yet he offers to go before a murderous king in order to save many from perishing. To save many, both his Jewish friends and the Gentile wise men, from perishing. Verse 25, Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found... Among the exiles from Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Wait, did he just take credit? I have found a man. You know, Arioch is just like his employer, isn't he? A man given to self-promotion. Verse 26, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. That name means may the god Bel protect the king. You know, this is a reminder to us that Daniel was well aware that Babylon constantly demanded his loyalty. The king said, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. See, unlike Arioch who promotes himself, 
Daniel is not ashamed of the God he worships. And he bears witness to his covenant king. You know, unlike Nebuchadnezzar's band of bumbling buffoons, Daniel has access to this God who is in heaven. And Daniel says, this is why the God gave you, this is why God gave you this dream. To reveal mysteries, meaning truths that you do not know. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. Verse 29. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. In other words, your dream is about the future. Verse 30. But as for me, notice Daniel's modesty. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order, that's the purpose, that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Look at me, I can interpret dreams. That's not what Daniel says. The reason God told me this interpretation is not so that I could look great. No, he wants you to know something so that God can look great. In other words, Daniel says, I'm just a messenger to make known what is to come. Your kingdom will fade away, but God's kingdom will abide forever. And that brings us to our third point. In this story, we get to hear of a heavenly kingdom. Daniel, the prophet, now tells Nebuchadnezzar his dream. Look at verses 31 to 36. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. He saw a statue. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. This was a humongous statue, large, tall, shiny. It was terrifying to behold. It was quite the spectacle. And this is how it looked. Verse 32. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So this image was made of four different metals with clay mixed up with the feet. Not a very good base for such a heavy metallic image. It tells you it has a shaky foundation. Verse 34, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, like the external covering of grain that it's useless, like chaff. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. That stone pulverized the entire image. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The stone grew, it expanded, almost like it was alive. It became a great mountain. Now notice the difference between a mere image and a mountain. Simply no comparison. Verse 36, this was the dream. You know, no wonder Nebuchadnezzar was worried. It looks like he had an inkling that perhaps this image represented him. If this was true, then both Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom had an expiry date. What could all of this mean? Well, God explains it through Daniel. Look at the text. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Verses 37 to 45. You, O king, the king of kings. What does that mean? Simply this, that his empire ruled over other kings. But it had nothing to do with his competence or might. Look at the text. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. God essentially says, you are who you are, and you are able to do what you do because of me. If only the government of the UAE, and the government of the Philippines, and of India, and of the United States, and all the world's governments knew that. But it's our job to proclaim it, whether they believe it or not. But that's not all. Verse 38. 
and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. There you have it. So Nebuchadnezzar was right. This dream is about him. He is the head of gold. But that's not all. The head of gold also represents his kingdom. Jeremiah called Babylon a golden cup in the Lord's hand. You cannot separate the king from his kingdom in this imagery. Now, did you notice the range and scope of Nebuchadnezzar's dominion? It's a bit much, don't you think? Over the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens. You know, in using this language to describe the scope of his dominion, the writer wants us to recognize something. Does that language sound familiar to you? That's the language of Psalm 8. Look at Psalm 8. Here the psalmist, being in awe of God's greatness, proclaims, What is man that you are mindful of him, O God? And yet God has crowned mankind with glory and honor. And then he says this in Psalm 8, 6-8. You have given him dominion. Over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You see what's happening here. Nebuchadnezzar is being portrayed as though he were a picture of humanity itself, of mankind itself. Mankind that was called by God to rule and subdue the earth under God. But instead of exercising a dependency and trust in God, just like Adam, the head of all mankind, this man has sinned. He has failed and turned in on himself. And just as Adam was judged, Nebuchadnezzar too will be judged. He will perish and his kingdom will come to an end. And in its place, another kingdom will come up. Look at verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you, shall arise after you. That's what the silver represents. Silver is inferior to gold. Now when we get to the subsequent chapters, especially in Daniel's visions, we will learn that the silver represents the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian kingdom ruled by Cyrus. Persian kings used to love to amass silver. The bronze represents Greece, and the iron represents Rome, and Daniel was right historically that's how these kingdoms followed, one after the other. So look at the text. What comes after the second kingdom? And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Massive. That refers to the wide conquests of Alexander the Great and his Greek generals. The Jewish historian Josephus referred to Alexander as a king who was clad in bronze. And the Greek armies as men of bronze coming in from the sea. Verse 40. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. You remember the distinctive weapon of Rome was their iron-headed pylon. It was like a javelin or a spear. Verse 41. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle or weak. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage for political reasons. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay, so it won't work. You know, as strong as Rome was, it was a divided kingdom, internally chaotic, frequent changes in leadership, emperors assassinating one another, and all of this eventually led to its downfall. You bring up Rome today, and what do people think of? Pizza and tourism. So much for the mighty Roman Empire. Verse 44, and in the days of those kings, when Rome is ruling the roost, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, 
and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Nothing can change this, says Daniel. Daniel is standing before the mighty Nebuchadnezzar and he's prophesying not only Babylon's downfall, he's also speaking of a heavenly kingdom to come. God's kingdom that will bring an end to every earthly kingdom and it will be established forever. Daniel says a stone that was cut by no human hand, meaning the stone is divine. It is God sent and it takes down this gigantic image that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream. Now, when was the last time you heard about a stone taking down a giant? David and Goliath, right? This stone is a Davidic stone. You know, this is a Davidic king, a son of David, who will set up an everlasting throne and kingdom, just as he promised David in 2 Samuel 7. God said, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, all these earthly kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world are perishable. They have an expiry date. Their glory is like the flower of the grass, momentary. You know, a few years ago in our congregation, the name Rodrigo Duterte was all the buzz. You know, people were constantly talking about the then newly appointed president. He's here to solve all our problems. He's the savior of the Philippines. You know, today I hardly hear anyone talking about him. What a speck of dust is human greatness. Joe Biden, the president of the United States, the man credited with giving the Democratic Party its greatest win, you know, now struggles to remember which way he's going. And soon, like a mist that vanishes, one day he will be gone. Even for the government in India, there is a day of reckoning coming. See, no human government, no human kingdom is forever. Because all of humanity has sinned and stands under the sentence of death for their rebellion against this God of heaven. And just like Adam, the priest king and head of the human race who failed to worship God and rule justly, and just like the kingdom of Israel and just like Nebuchadnezzar and Every one of us has sinned and we have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. But friends, here's the good news of the grace of God. This high king of heaven entered into a covenant with sinners and graciously promised them a savior king who would not only save them from their sin, but would also rule righteously. We read this, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah 9.7 You know, Isaiah described this coming Messiah as a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone that must be believed in. And if that's not clear, listen to Peter in Acts 4 verses 11 to 12. Peter says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 21, 44, that if you reject that stone, it will crush you to pieces. If you put your hope in the human enterprise or the kingdoms of this world, you will perish. But the gospel, according to Daniel, is that if you put your trust in the king to come, who will usher in an everlasting kingdom, your sins will be forgiven, and you can live and be subjects of the king of heaven. You know, just as Daniel foretold in the days of the Roman Empire, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. He sent his son into our sinful world to inaugurate his kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection. Have you noticed how in the gospel accounts, the writers link events to the Old Testament. You know, at the time of Jesus' birth, who comes? Magi, wise men from the East, come seeking a king to worship. Could it be 
that hundreds of years before, there was a wise man in exile, speaking their own language, prophesying about a coming king and his kingdom. Around the time of Jesus' birth, you see lots of people having dreams. Once again, the Magi have dreams, Joseph has a dream. And don't forget the angel Gabriel, who appears to Mary and says, You will have a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You know, it's interesting that Gabriel shows up. That's intentional, I think. You know, the first time Gabriel shows up is in Daniel 8 and chapter 9. And he explains to Daniel a vision. A vision about the coming Messiah and his kingdom. And the only other time Gabriel shows up is in the gospel accounts. He shows up to John and to Mary. And he says, it's, the time is here. The king is here. He shows up to Zechariah to talk about John the Baptist's preparatory ministry. And then he shows up to Mary. You know, any Jew would remember the last time Gabriel showed up was to tell Daniel the king is coming. Now Gabriel shows up. What does it mean? You know, the Chaldeans did not know what the dream was or what it meant. They said, this is for the gods who don't dwell with human flesh. And yet the one true God, the God of heaven, sent his sinless son who took on human flesh and made his dwelling among men to save us from our rebellion. Jesus Christ demonstrated what it meant to be a true human being under God. He is the man who fulfills what Adam could not do. And because of his perfect obedience, God has crowned him with glory and honor. And he has put all things under his feet, giving him as head for all things, especially for the sake of his church. All authority and all dominion has been given to him. He is the one who inaugurates a kingdom that is not of this world. And just like in Daniel's dream, his kingdom in this age is small and unimpressive, like a mustard seed, but it grows, doesn't it? Grows into a large tree, like that stone that grows into a mountain, filling the whole earth. That language is similar to Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, in this age, the kingdom spreads as the church proclaims the gospel and as people come to faith in Christ. This is only possible because of Christ who inaugurated his kingdom. Christ, in obedience to God's eternal purposes, went to the cross and he died in the place of all those who would repent of their sins and put their trust in him. And then he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead to give us new hearts that we might become children of God, that we might become citizens of his kingdom. This is the one who proclaimed, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I would plead with you not to leave this place without bowing your knee to Jesus Christ. You know, there might be a buffet, an option of religions out there, a variety of philosophies that you can choose from to put your trust in. But remember this. Like Nebuchadnezzar's image, they will all fall down. They will all disintegrate into pieces and shown to be false saviors. No, repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. He is your king and he is the one true God of all the earth. Don't make the mistake of thinking of him as one among many gods. That's the mistake that Nebuchadnezzar made. That's what Nebuchadnezzar thought after Daniel revealed and interpreted the dream. He was more impressed with God's power than his kingship or his coming kingdom. Look at the text, verses 46 to 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. You know, this is the language of worship. And he commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. He knew that he had no access to this God. And so in his pagan mind, well, this was the next best thing to do. Worship Daniel. Verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods. Notice that he is still polytheistic. One among the many. He might be great or the greatest, but he's one among the many. 
and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. Why? For you have been able to reveal this mystery, is impressed with power. You know, if your heart is worshipping power, that's what you'll be impressed with. Power. Verse 48. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect, which means head over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Again, notice the actions of a man who has just seen the glory of God's coming kingdom. What does he do? He asks for his friends to be appointed over the affairs of Babylon. You know, Daniel knew that God wanted the exiles to seek the welfare of Babylon, to do good to a people who had taken them captive. You know, what better way to do that than to ensure a godly presence and a godly witness through his friends? You know, this was a providential opportunity that presented itself because Daniel was not afraid to make the truth of the dream known to a king who was opposed to the one true God. Think about that. Usually we're afraid to witness to God thinking that things can go wrong. Things actually work out pretty well here. Despite Daniel prophesying about the one true God, that he is opposed to, the, to Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Yet Daniel gets this opportunity. So friends, what about you? How do you understand all of this? Is your growth in the knowledge of Christ leading to a greater obedience and a greater desire to make his name known? Or are you constantly worrying about the consequences? You know, leave the consequences to God. Remember that God provides you, sovereignly provides you the context for your obedience. So pray for wisdom and understanding and be faithful and leave the consequences, leave the results to God. We see here, but Daniel remained at the king's court. We don't know the specific reason for this, but Nebuchadnezzar might have wanted him close by. Perhaps for superstitious reasons, we don't know. But it also explains Daniel's absence in the next chapter. Because Daniel's in the court. Friends, God revealed this dream, the interpretation of this dream to Daniel so that the people of Israel in exile might have hope. That's the point. So that in their suffering, they would have the strength to persevere, knowing that God was in control of their situation and that his kingdom was coming. As one author has said, the God who knows the future controls the future. Therefore, we can put our trust in his word every word, and we can stand firm in it. You know, this passage is for us to give us hope as Christians living in the Babylon that we call the UAE. Wherever you live, that's your Babylon. It's written to give us hope, to look forward to God's coming kingdom, to the return of Jesus, to help us persevere in trials. We're not to chase after the things of this age like the nations do, but we are called to seek the kingdom of Christ, to cling fast to his word, to proclaim his gospel, to love his church, to labor in faith, in hope, and in love. In times of trial or political unrest or persecution, we must remember these words of Jesus from Luke 12, 32. Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Friends, I think there's a great lesson to be learned here. No matter how badly we want things to change in our respective lands and governments, we should not put our hope in the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated already, and we have received God's Spirit as citizens of His heavenly kingdom, and one day it will be here in all its glory. That's where we ought to put our hope, and it is a sure hope. Let us be grateful for receiving an indestructible, unshakable kingdom. And let us not be afraid to proclaim our allegiance to our King. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the great salvation we have because of his work. Lord, we pray that you would fill your people with your spirit, 
so that we would proclaim the glories of your kingdom, that we would call people to repentance and faith, that we would apply the gospel to our lives, that we would grow in faith and hope and love. Lord, we pray that you would bless the witness of this congregation, that even as we leave from here and go to our respective workplaces the next day, we pray that we would be faithful, that we would be bold in our allegiance to King Jesus, that we would put our hope not in this world, but in the one to come. And so we pray, come soon, Lord Jesus, in his name. Amen.